I don't think we imagined ourselves saving the world or saving Iraq or anything like that. We, we did have this kind of core conviction that presence itself mattered. And I think we were definitely concerned with the impact that we might be able to make in the lives of a, a community or a couple of people or something more granular. Welcome to the At Sea Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McRoberts. On August 2nd, 1990, Operation Desert Shield began. Called by some the Persian Gulf War, I remember that time clearly. I found myself blocking roadways in my hometown with groups of friends, each of us carrying cardboard signs with anti-war slogans. My response to that war was as emotional as it was uninformed. All I knew was the people my age were dying violently and I reacted. I didn't know the politics or the sociology, I just knew I didn't like the idea of war. Well, fast forward over a decade to the mid-2000s and meet Jeremy Courtney, who in the shadow of the Iraq War, which began in March of 2003, moved his family to Iraq, not because they had a plan or mountains of cash to throw at a problem, and not because they were giving in to an uninformed emotion. They moved to Iraq because there were people there. The binary vitriol they heard concerning the Iraq War didn't touch the people it would most directly and dramatically affect, and that family wanted to touch those people. That was the beginning of what is now called the Preemptive Love Coalition. This podcast puts you in touch with great culture makers because I believe what they do helps to deepen and enrich our lives. Jeremy's work enriches many lives, including mine. I caught up with him between Preemptive Love operations in Iraq. Check it out. Hello. Hey, man. Hey, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing very well. Where are you right now? I'm at home. I'm at home in my little upstairs office. I'm actually east of San Francisco. I'm going to, I live in the East Bay. I just tell people San Francisco because if I say like Concord or Oakland and I'm somewhere off the West Coast, people think I live in LA. The, The mental geography is like you live in San Francisco or Los Angeles, as if as if California is the size of Connecticut. You have three options. <laughs> yeah. At one point, you were in the states quite a bit. Are you in? How often are you in Iraq now? This is this is home. I travel to the states per my speaking schedule, which you know is kind of seasonal. So, when you say this is home, does it feel like home? Like, does living in Iraq feel like home? Like emotionally, do you feel like this is this is where I belong? Is it like how has it? What's it mean to you when you say this is home? It's a little bit of both. It's you know, in many ways, I feel like we don't have a home at all. Um, in in any kind of like deep sense, I no longer belong to America. I no longer belong in the same way that I once did to my church, my tribe. Uh, I'm, I'm very much in between in a lot of ways, because obviously we don't belong deeply to the Iraqi culture or history or, or landscape. But in a, in a more temporal, normal day-to-day kind of way, this is very much home here in Iraq. Um, We have a house, it's comfortable, it's our place, it's what our kids have always known. This is our 10th year in Iraq, and our kids really consider this place to be their home. And when we talk about going back to the U.S. to see family, cousins, all that, um, you know, they're really excited about the relationships, but but they would be much more happy if people would just come to our place here in Iraq and see us. 
So, I mean, insofar as it's home and that really functional, this is where we live sense, it's still your sense of place is almost a little disoriented then because you, you're, you're kind of communicating. They don't really belong deeply because there's a way to be somewhere, but then not be rooted per se. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't belong deeply to much of anything except our, our ideas and the preemptive love family itself. Who's, who's all kind of displaced and on journey and, and trying to, trying to make a new community to whom we we all belong because we we're all misfits from the place that we came from just by virtue of the things that we've seen and experienced out in the world um but we're also misfits to the place where we happen to be right now because of the things that we've experienced in our worldview and and what we're out to accomplish in the world When you talk about preemptive love, you wrote a book about the about you guys' history, and you describe it as it's like a, a journey of your family. Like it's something that your family belongs to, or that, that you know you guys are in together. That it wasn't mm. so much like a like, hey, you know, Jeremy's got this thing going on, and the family was like, oh crap, <laughs> what? This is the decision you and Jessica made. Actually, let's do this. How how did you guys meet? You and Jessica. No, we met at college at an RA resident assistant or whatever that stands for, kind of housing, dorm housing uh, retreat. So we were both to be RAs in our own, me in the male dorm and she in the, the female dorm. And we went away for a summer retreat before all the other students arrived. And that's where we met for the first time. She had a boyfriend. I had a girlfriend. <laughs> And that's where we met and kind of hit it off as friends or whatever, but um, kind of took separate paths for a while. And then one night I was going with a friend to the sorority house where this friend was hanging out. Uh, and I walked into this room and Jessica was sitting there. My wife was sitting there crying, sad. She'd just broken up with her boyfriend of a couple of years and I had since broken up with my girlfriend. Oh, the stars and aligned. <laughs> the stars, the stars aligned. aligned. And l- literally from that moment where we hadn't seen each other in like a year or so, and she had just broken up, we hadn't, we never spent, you know, a day separated awesome. since, you know, and, and ended up getting married. So we, we graduated one weekend, got wow. married the next weekend. And uh, within a few weeks after that, we found ourselves careening into September 11th, 2001, which seemed to, which ended up being a, a very catalytic, world-changing moment. What, were you working at the time? What were you doing? 9/11. Yeah, like when you, like when you find, when you, we were all, we were all kind of as as a whole nation, kind of careening into 9/11. Was there something specific for you and Jessica that? That was the, the work that you were doing. Like, was there a particular tie? Uh, I think it was significant for us in as much as we were just adult enough to make our own decisions. Like, we just graduated, living on our own, just married. Um, so we got to be the boss of us. But 
completely young and naive and still in grad school and the entire future was yet to be written. We weren't in a mortgage. We didn't have, you know, unmanageable debt. We we were still naive enough to just do whatever we thought was mm. best. You know, we could live into our ideals rather than be controlled by by like reasonableness <laughs> <Right>. or reality. <laughs> and and so 9-11 ended up being a very catalytic thing for us because we saw the U.S. kind of dividing along these these fighting lines where there were those who wanted to turn Afghanistan into a parking lot and wanted to pick up the war against Saddam Hussein and start that thing over again. And there was a very vengeful right. spirit across America at that time toward Muslims toward people who ostensibly looked like Muslims, whatever that might mean. Uh, and and we decided that we wanted to swim upstream against that violent waters. Can you give a little bit of a background as to how how you got to where you are now yeah so we moved to iraq in the middle of the iraq war when the headlines were rife with stories about sunni shia sectarian conflict and i think collectively as america or as american people a lot of us were wrestling with the ideas of what it means to be uh, a patriot, what it means to support our troops. You know, mm-hmm. it seemed like all of us had friends or family who had served or were serving in Iraq or Afghanistan. And just trying to come to terms, the country was, I think, largely dispirited by the American involvement in the war by that point. And we. We just we knew some people in Iraq, and we were hearing the stories a little differently, I think, than others, and wondered if by moving our, our family into Iraq at that time, if we could make a difference. Uh, so without like a, like a strategic, like, we're going to go and do this thing, you, no. you went to Iraq to figure out if there was a thing to do. Quite literally, yeah. I mean, huh. there, there, we had, by the time we actually put action to it and moved. We knew a couple of people who had maybe a a soft landing for us to get started. But, um, but I think we always sensed that there would be something more after. In fact, we even had some, some kind of wise sagacious friends who were years ahead of us saying, this will almost certainly be like bait on a hook. And it's like, (laughs) God will probably, uh, kind of do a switcheroo on you once you get there. If, hmm. if if we could conceive of God being like that, the thing that gets you in is not the thing that often keeps you in a hard place like this. And yeah. that was definitely our story. So we, we moved in uh, rather naively and I've, I've become a big fan of naivete. <laughs> uh, I don't think we imagined ourselves, um, saving the world or saving Iraq or anything like that. We, we did have this kind of core conviction that presence itself mattered. And, Mm -hmm. um, I think we were definitely concerned with the impact that we might be able to make in the lives of a, a a community or a couple of people or something more granular. 
And fairly soon after moving into Iraq, middle of the Iraq war, I was working on my laptop in a hotel lobby in a cafe pretty safely ensconced behind these 14 foot high concrete bomb blast walls outside. And the chai guy at the cafe kind of sauntered up to the table, set my tea down and lingered for a little while. And it got a little awkward. And he finally said something to the effect of, you know, you've been coming here for a while now. Can I ask you a favor? And I said, yeah, man, go ahead. And he held his hand up to about his waist and he said, you know, uh, I've got this cousin. She's about yay big now. Uh, when she was born, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these years of dictatorship and war and sectarian conflict and Al-Qaeda targeting our doctors, we don't have a hospital or a surgeon left in all of Iraq who can save her life. You're an American You've obviously come here to help us. Would you please help my little cousin? He approached and, you because he knew you were American. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And that, that stood for something, you know, that meant something. And the truth was, I, I wasn't interested. I, I was scared. I didn't want to let him down. I didn't want to venture into this painful situation yeah. and, yeah, it's and not, not like be, asked, it's not like you asked like hey i need to move this couch right Can i mean you and some like, friends come by <laughs> it was like hi this child she's got a hole in her heart wonder if you can help out like this is a really different that's it that, that's a pretty major ask yeah so i felt fairly justified in saying look i don't know anything about heart surgery so i'm off the hook on that account um <laughs> I don't know anything about getting children outside of a war zone into some other country. Uh, so I'm off the hook on that account. Yeah. It sounds like I'm not your guy. <laughs> um, but he just very winsomely, very humbly kind of disarmed me and shifted my perspective. I later came to realize that I was, I was viewing the situation primarily through a lens of um, failure, fear, like, if I were to venture into this and fail, what would he think about me? Mm-hmm. What would he think about Americans? What would he think about uh, charitable humanitarian organizations who always seem to let people down? What would he think about Christians, Christianity, Jesus, God, you know, all these kinds of things that I wore way too preciously on my shoulders, like like it was, in fact, my job to somehow save the world and protect everyone's reputation everywhere. Yeah. And he kind of flipped the tables on me and just said, you're, you're looking at this all wrong. She's already a dead girl walking to us. I mean, what we need you to, to see in this opportunity is what if, like, what if you succeed? What if you do know the right person after just a couple of phone calls? You're an American, man. Mm-hmm. Like, you have all the resources in the world compared to us. And what if you could just find the right person and what if you succeed and what if one surgery changes her life and what if she goes on to become a mom and have a baby and, you know, and it's sort of like that. I mean, it's sort of like a different tack on that whole, you know, we're not afraid of our powerlessness. We're afraid of our power thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not even that you were afraid of your power. (laughs) You didn't know you had it. Like you didn't Mm -hmm. know, like it was like there, there was a ton of upside, at least the way he saw you. Yep. A ton of upside, a ton of potential, 
And you had been sort of convinced, as I guess so many of us are, that like, well, I know my limits. I know what I'm able to accomplish, and I'll I'll set my own ceiling here. And I know that and I know where it is. And he's and he kind of blew the roof off the thing. That's right. That's exactly it. And so, very winsomely, he disarmed me and convinced me to kind of give it a shot. So a couple of days later, I agreed to meet with cousin the dad and dad shows up at the same hotel cafe and uh before he sits down to meet with me he rounds the corner and in his hand he's got the hand of his little girl that he's brought to the meeting and before they make it in through the doors to my table you know i'm a goner and um we sit at the table and he shows me this medical report and it doesn't make any sense to me. But, but by the time we're, we're all done, I agree to take the report and make a few phone calls. But I swore to the dad, I'm, I'm not going to succeed. Like, I don't know anybody. I don't have any idea how to do this for you. Hmm. I'm going to do it just in this very kind of perfunctory. I, I want to be known as a helpful person. So sure. I'll, I'll begrudgingly help you, but but I'm not going to succeed for you. And I don't want you to hang your hopes on me because I really don't want to let you down. And later that day or the next day I made a a phone call and like my first phone call, maybe my second phone call, the girl on the other end of the line just kind of nonchalantly says, Oh yeah, I know all about that. Uh, Just bring the file over and we'll see what we can do to help the girl. Who's the person who knows everything? Who's that? (laughs) Just this, this other foreign American girl who was living in the city that I barely knew um, that someone had suggested I get in touch with. And it ushered this thing that was supposed to be impossible then suddenly became very possible. And it ushered us into this community of hundreds and then tens of thousands of kids across Mm -hmm. Iraq who were suffering from these life-threatening birth defects as a result often of violence, whether whether it was an extremely acute kind of thing where Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons against his people and these sulfur mustard gas agents had created mutagenic DNA damage in the lives of the population and so their children were being born with birth defects. Or in a, in a more chronic kind of subtle sense that violence was um, keeping communities separated one from one another. And, and so it continued to perpetuate the age-old tribalistic kind of act mm. of intrafamily marriage, which is known to, to produce higher rates of birth defects in and among first cousins, possibly second cousins as well. So from all that and just chronic stress in a war zone and and other fallout from munitions, there was a huge rise in birth defects across the country. And um, we became one of the chief, if not the primary uh, service provider saving the lives of these kids, uh, primarily those who were born with with life-threatening heart defects. had to reinvent a few times exactly exactly like what it is you're doing what it is you're trying to pull off and some of that has to do with the, the ground beneath your feet living in iraq changes i mean it moves all the time politically socially militarily I mean, things haven't been stable for well since you got there i mean 10 years like every every few years is a considerable turnover in terms of 
the threat you're facing and you're always on the yeah. move trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, the, the first, the first minutes and hours after the final U S soldier stepped out of Iraq were, were insane. Um, the, the level of reprisals and political brinkmanship that happened as the last American walked off Iraqi soil was really peaked and extreme. And then, you know, things kind of settled into a type of stasis for, for a while. Um, there was a lot going on behind the scenes and, and sometimes overtly, but, right. but it was manageable until, Roughly the time of the, the the mayor of Fallujah was assassinated, I want to say maybe September 2013, something around there, the, we were en route to Fallujah with a medical team, and the mayor was assassinated by what was then called the Islamic State of Iraq. And the government told us, you can't, you can't come in. We're going to have to cancel the medical mission. Uh, you know, there's been this, this attack and now we're two years on, I guess, approaching three years on and Fallujah has not been in government control since that day. You're, you have operations in Fallujah, uh, and Ramadi and you guys were also working in Aleppo, correct? We did have, we, we had some, you know, fairly regular uh, medical work that we were doing in Fallujah and, and trying to get some stuff going into Crete. Uh, we did some work into Crete. And then after, I guess, summer 2014, we, ISIS had overrun about a third of Iraq by that point and was just marauding its way across the country, killing thousands and thousands of people in mass slaughters and at that moment we were still technically a heart surgery organization which was becoming increasingly irrelevant and uh, no one was talking about heart surgeries people were just talking about how to how to stay alive no yeah. one was talking about complex medicine for their children it was just run for your life mm-hmm. and so we were faced with this not at all difficult decision of are we going to sit by during one of the most extreme humanitarian crises of our lifetime and claim that we were a heart surgery organization and it wasn't our mandate to to go out to the front lines and help the millions and millions of people that were being driven from their home or are we going to expand our our mandate and be the people that we claim to be the people who jump forward to love others before anyone does anything to to love us are we going to go where no one else will go to love the people that no one else will love and so we just kind of like you said reinvented ourselves in that moment asked our our loyal supporters who have been with us from the beginning if they we we admitted we have no idea what we're doing in terms of being a an emergency aid organization but we're here, and there are not very many other people left. Which is kind of, I mean, that's kind of the way it started. You were like, we're going to be present right? and then see how this plays out. We don't have a plan. We don't know how to get into what's wrong, but we, wanted, we want to. So you're kind of back at the beginning. Like after, after years of being about heart surgery, now you've got to reinvent again. And that's really what it felt like in many ways. I mean, it was... It was scary. It was fresh. It was starting all over again. It was exhilarating. It was urgent. It was extremely high stakes. Uh, In some ways, however, and I think this is why a lot of us lose our edge as we age, 
we did have a little something to lose at this point. I mean, we had, uh, you know, we're not a big deal, but we had a bit of a reputation and a bit of uh, a support base and some money in the bank and some comfort that had been established just by virtue of the fact that we now we now had an organization to yeah. lose. And on day one in the middle of the Iraq War, 2006, we didn't have an organization to lose. All we had was our lives to yeah. lose. And, and now somehow, ironically, um, organization, money in the bank, reputation, these things can, can become huge anchors around your neck that, that hmm. just drag you down and, and kill you, kill your spirit, kill your innovation, kill the the very thing that, that got you started in the first place. It's almost like the curse of success. Like having exactly. had some success, like now people, now, now the folks around you for better, for worse, probably for better, but for better, for worse, actually know you can accomplish something. They know that you have some power to, to make change and, and that expectation can be crippling. Yeah. And, and thankfully, um, I, I don't even know what, exactly to attribute it to i probably need to continue to reflect on that some but uh the moment upon us in summer 2014 with the rise of isis was just so urgent and so scary that it it mostly felt inevitable it felt like we we absolutely must do this we we Hmm. could not possibly sit by and do nothing and so now we're about two years into that it sadly uh, devastatingly it's been two years since isis became a household name um and we have been doing everything that we know how to do certainly learning a lot along the way about how to go to the front lines where people are literally languishing in the desert in 120 degree heat and showing up with food and water and then walking the long haul with some of those people who will allow us and moving from that uh, handout moment in the middle of the desert mm-hmm. to more of a long-term, let us give you a hand up and really stand you up on your own two feet uh, and, and get people to a place where they're working again and earning money for their family. And, and we're not showing up giving food and clothes, but but we're engaging in the harder more dignifying work where they put their life back together the they work process. hard yeah they they generate fam- they generate the money that their family needs so they can feed their family they can pay their rent they can put their kids back in school Does anger play a role for you? Like, how do you keep from hating people? Because your thing, I mean, the organization is called Preemptive Love. And a lot of your communication is like, is, you know, hashtag love anyway. That it's this way, these people, this is what's happening. It's that bad. Love anyway. And I'm thinking from the standpoint of not even, not just, you know, not just ISIS, which is like, that's the easy one. Like you, like, well, maybe it's not easy, but that's the, that's the, 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 I guess the prominent image in my mind. Like, how do you not hate those people? And, and does anger play a role? Do you hate, do you, how do you, how do you combat that? And then in terms of the way America hears and responds to the news, I mean, like, you know, what's been happening in, in Aleppo over the last few weeks, there's no news coverage. There's like, there's no one talking about it. So uh, yeah. how does that, not even like, do you get mad, but like how, like, 
does anger play a role? Does it have a part in your life? Like, how does that work out for you? Yeah, anger definitely has a place in our life. And I'm not sure that it's an altogether unhealthy place. I think that... Like that it's not um, bad for you to be angry. Yeah, I don't think it's bad for us to be angry about mass slaughter, about the enslavement and systematic rape of our Yazidi women friends, about the, the kidnapping of young children, about beheading of men, about sectarian conflict and corruption and barrel bombing of civilian populations and uh, marking people's homes for expropriation or extermination, mm -hmm. for for airstrikes that wipe out entire communities, for communities that are liberated. And when the liberators come to town and drive ISIS away, the liberators themselves destroy the very town that they were supposed to be freeing. I, I don't think anger in the face of such suffering and violence and human um, evil is... Mm -hmm is unwarranted or is a bad thing. I think I grew up in a more dualistic view of the world that basically said good versus evil, um, happy versus anger, joy versus sadness. And there was always this like language and posture that we do war within ourselves to drive out all the unpleasant things. And anger among them, anger always on the side of, of the wrong, the wrong, certainly. And what, even though I, I would say that my tradition would have used a phrase like righteous anger, um, I don't, I don't know that I was ever actually disciplined in thinking about how, how anger could genuinely have a seat at the table. And I think what I'm learning now, um, through this crisis in particular, so I'm only about two years into this lesson is that I, I need anger in my life and I need sadness and I need suffering and I need the unpleasant things because those unpleasant things, they give context for the happiness and the joy and, and the pleasant things. They are, they're, they're somehow a very integrated symbiotic relationship between them. And so what is dung uh, in this situation is also the very thing that that nurtures and gives life to the hmm. good smelling flower. And I'm I'm learning, I'm not there, but I'm I'm learning to somehow be at peace with my anger and my sadness and yeah. my joy and my longings and, and all those things. They're, they're part of the entire ecosystem of, of what brings about uh, life and, and how life then moves toward death somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes me think of the, 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 the lyrics from, uh, it's like the Rage Against the Machine song "Freedom," in which uh, Dale Rocha says that that's uh, one of my favorite quotes from any song. He says, "Anger is a gift." Mm. There's a point at which it seems like there's a point at which, like, gosh, if you're not mad about it, mm. I'm not sure you get it. Mm -hmm. Like that should make you mad, and your anger. There's a way to sort of direct that, and I love it, the way you said it. Like you know, finding a you kind of need there's a, you need this anger and sadness. Otherwise, like, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure you're actually 
in it if you're not mad about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I guess maybe coming at it from a different angle than I did the first round hmm. is one thing that I've learned is there's something um, easier about preaching this whole ethic of preemptive love or love anyway when you're talking about some uh, exotic other, you know, Muslim terrorist, ISIS, some group of people on the other side of the world that most of us will never meet or know. And so they may be weird or exotic to you, Justin, but when I say love anyway, I sound profound and interesting and like a leader. Um, But what's significantly harder for me is to adopt that same gracious posture uh, and that leaning into relationship when it comes to my people back home that I thought were supposed to know better that, that I feel somehow betrayed by because they're all voting for Donald Trump or whatever. Um, those people, and and anytime you start using those people, you know, you're headed down a a dangerous path, Mm. but, but those people are, are much harder for me to actually practice what I preach and I don't get any credit. You know, you don't, you don't get any kudos for loving the people that you're supposed to already love. And, and so I think that that's where the, the anger thing is probably misplaced um, and, and not appropriate. Like the degree to which I can be gracious and humble and welcoming with, and I mean this a little bit tongue in cheek, but the exotic other is, is the minimum degree to which I should also be welcoming and humble mm-hmm. and gracious to my own people because, because I understand my own people better. And, yeah. and if I'm, if I'm only loving to the degree that there's significant cultural and linguistic and worldview difference between us, mm-hmm then I may not actually be that hospitable. I may just be reveling in the exotic and the and basking in the glow that I get from other people for, for thinking well of me, you know? Right. The work you do in both cases, you're talking about you know this sort of sense of uh, of responsibility and identity that like who you, who you are, your limitations, your capabilities, and at one point saying like, hey, I don't want you like I'm gonna go try this thing and and I'm just letting you know this isn't gonna go well, but I'm gonna mm. give it a shot anyway. Sort of you know maybe even to some degree responsibly divorcing yourself from the promise of success. Um, here, the work you do is it's it's important and it's delicate and it's vital and it's inspiring and all this kind of stuff. I wonder if it's difficult to keep from over identifying yourself with it. You know, like I coach, like I'll coach artists, and one of the things I'll try to uh, you know uh, dig into really hard is like you know don't ever let your work define you as a person. Like it's what it is what you do, and it is an outpouring of your identity. This has got to be harder to some degree, and I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but like, is it difficult to keep from like over identifying or over personalizing it, or or maybe you do? It's like, no, this is personal, and it, it is about who I am. Like, how does that work out? Yeah, I th- I think 
So, and I think I may be headed for some kind of significant midlife crisis. <laughs> You're kind of planning on it? You've got the Ferrari picked out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the board may fire me, you know, and I may go into a tailspin and have no idea who I am or, or if my life matters. I think I, I do significantly identify with, with all that this is, and it doesn't feel wrong or unhealthy to me but but i i'm certainly familiar with what you're saying and what you coach other people um you know in terms of not over identifying and that that also rings true with me you know i guess in some sense i feel like perhaps i am i'm more than this i i'm not reducible to just this this chair that I sit in or this role that I fill or this place that I happen to live or even this particular set of ideas that I have or I'm living into right now. But on the other hand, this is not just a job for me. This is coming out of the absolute core of who I am and the core of who we are as a family and the core of who we are are and are trying to be as a community. And so in that way, I'm I'm certainly not less Mm -hmm. than this. And um, I, I significantly find my my joy and my sense of meaning and trajectory in this life bound up in in the sorrows and joy and trajectory of the people of Iraq and Syria and Iran and the things that they've suffered and the things that they're aspiring toward and the violence that has beset them and and all the the possibilities that they have at their fingertips. In a somewhat unique note to this episode of the podcast, it was our intention to move this conversation to ways that you and I can support the work the Preemptive Love Coalition does. Jeremy was pulled away, unfortunately, by urgent matters that evening, and and then our further efforts to reconnect were actually thwarted by further urgent matters, including Jeremy coordinating with a team of his delivering food and supplies to families in an ISIS-controlled area who were pinned down overnight, hiding on the side of the road, while ISIS soldiers and weaponry passed on the road they'd been traveling on. The situation was actually worsened as U.S. and coalition strikes against that band of ISIS soldiers threatened the lives of that preemptive love team who were trying to deliver food and supplies to families in the ISIS-controlled area. The work that Jeremy does, along with his family and the Preemptive Love Coalition, it it challenges and inspires. Specifically, it smashes the binary mode in which I would otherwise prefer to live. A world of bad guys and good guys. And the clear lines between them. Which is not to say that there isn't good in the world or evil. That's something I share deeply with Jeremy, that there is evil in the world and that what is good in the world is worth fighting for. But the way Jeremy enters that battle moves me because he takes into account the very complicated spaces between those extremes, spaces filled with human lives and stories. Between ISIS and the United States, there are human lives, many of those lives, children's lives, which are yet undeveloped and trapped by stories they didn't choose and didn't construct. See, Jeremy and the Preemptive Love Coalition know and believe that the best and maybe the only way to honestly and fully help the lives trapped between those extremes 
is not to cast judgment, or to even insert our own narratives, but to set those lives up to build a future with their own hands. If you would like to help them do that, you can visit preemptivelove.org. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Max Butler, who is a wonderful and gifted artist from Oakland, California. You can find us by visiting at cevents.com, and I can personally be found at justinmcroberts.com. If you like what we're doing with the podcast, and we hope you do, please leave a positive review at iTunes. Until next time.